This is the Oasis, a whole virtual universe. A contest changed everything. The first to finish gets complete control of the Oasis. Which means complete control of the future. What would you do if you won? Your husband's here. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the Shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel. As always, I am very happy to say I'm joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. A privilege. It is, isn't it? It is a privilege for you to critically joust with myself. And it's a privilege for them to listen to our epic battles of movie opinion. Of, well, yes, of, of wit and... Wit and insight... Uh, 41 such battles, in fact. Yes, indeed, that's what I was going to say. Um, not really paying attention to how many we'd done, I completely missed the fact that the last episode we did, which was the Oscars Roundup, was episode 40 of the Electric Shadows podcast. So can I just say thank you, Rob, for being my partner in pod for 40 episodes. I know, it's, it sounds it's such a... Uh... Such a cliche, such a but it, it such a platitude, but it's gone pretty quickly, hasn't it? Forty episodes have flown by. It has to be said. I mean, doing... you, you might not agree, listeners. You, yes. <laughs> oh God, they're still going. <laughs> I mean, I, I think if we were to listen to them back to back, they wouldn't fly by because we rarely bring it in under an hour. So I think we've got at least sixty hours of film chat in what we've done so far. Would you say? Yeah, but in all fairness, we have we've you know completely limited to that. No further discussion is taking place at all outside, you know, off mic. Yeah, I mean, I am actually monastic when it comes to my to my life. I have taken a vow of silence. All I do is just watch movies silently. Apart from silent movies, I talk the whole, the whole way through those. It's just a complicated man. But yeah, so. 41 episodes now. So that first one when we said, should we give it a go? Should we do a podcast and see what it's like? And then you said, but there are lots of Westerns released at this time. Um, just you know, a slew of Westerns have been released. So we do a winter of the Westerns and that was the first one. And I'm going I'm to go back and listen to that one because I'm sure, well, technically I'm sure I fucked up the entire recording of it and it sounds awful. But I'd imagine that the chat's still quite good. Oh, I like to think so, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, would you like to get your plugs done? Oh, uh, the personal? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can uh, read my writing at uh, of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com, or follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. I also have a Facebook group. Oh, yes, you do, don't you? Which is called? Of all the film sites. Indeed. I would say, yes, go in and have a look at Rob's site. Uh, the writing's very good. Your review of You Were Never Really Here... Probably the best one I've read, actually. It certainly has the best line of criticism in it that I've read, and I won't spoil it, but it's about Joaquin Phoenix's appearance, and it's such a... It just... It's the best line you're going to read about that film. 
anyway, yeah, and uh, so my plugs, uh, let me see. You can follow me at Twitter, um, at Robert underscore A, no, sorry, at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. Electric Shadows, electric dash shadows.com is where you can find my writing. I seem to be trying to sabotage people finding my stuff. You can, of course, subscribe on iTunes to <laughs> the Electric Shadows podcast. We are on SoundCloud as well. And we're also on the Android one that I keep forgetting to look at which one we're on. Please, if anyone listens to these, and I know that you do, could you maybe just leave a comment on the website page to say, it's this fucking one that you signed up to. It's the really big Android one. I can never remember which one it is. Rob's doing a search for it now. Castbox, Dogcatcher, Google Play Music, no, Pocketcasts. These don't sound familiar. Podcast Addict. No, that sounds a good one, though. I might have a look at that. Podcast Go. <clears throat> Stitcher Radio for podcasts. I think. SoundCloud. Yeah, we're on SoundCloud. So you can definitely follow us on that. I might see about signing us up on some other ones as well, because we do need to to get our words out there. iTunes is not big enough for us. <laughs> but if you do listen on iTunes and want to leave us a little review, if you like it, uh, please do. If you have some uh, suggestions on how to make it better, please leave those as long as they're nicely worded. Um, make it shorter. Make your intro shorter. It's been five friggin' minutes. You've not even talked about Ready Player One yet or Annihilation. Anyway, so... not even mention we're going to talk about Ready Player One or <laughs> Annihilation. But that's the name of the thing, isn't it? It's a level of guess by now. Because we have a very, very uh, intelligent... Astute. Astute listenership. Yeah. We do. And as you said last time, this is the kind of shit that they like. And then when it gets into the movie dog, it's like, oh, we'll just chat shit again. We should do a Derek and Clive and get absolutely hammered <laughs> and just talk about... Choose a Disney film. A great film to drunk watch would be... That's a good one. Great. Because you could go either way, couldn't you? You could go with something very, very wholesome, like The Sound of Music, and drunk watch The Sound shit of Music. Shit-face Sound of Music. Yeah. Shit-face Sound of Music. Oh, that's it. Shit-face Sound of Music. That's going to be a podcast this year. You know that just ends with me drunkenly trying to sing along while you you try and make half-cup semi-intelligent points on. No, it would just be me talking about how much, as a kid, Julie Andrews was my formative sexual kind of being. And uh, there's Mary Poppins, not as the... Not as... What's her name? Maria. Maria. Not as her. (laughs) But as Mary. (laughs) So anyway, this has now turned into a therapy session. And uh, and there will be much more of that on Shitface Sound of Music. <laughs> shitface, that's that is a strand that we're going to do. Shitface insert film, film here. Shitface shinlessly. <laughs> <laughs> they all have to begin with S just so they're alliterative. That's right. Hey, hey, Shitface Star Wars. Shitface Star Wars. That's a good one. Shitface Star Wars Episode One. Ah. Film probably does reward. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. I'm so sorry, Jake. You should be the new Olden Era Reich. Anyway. So sorry, I'm my best. You should have been the Andy Circus of your generation. Yes, that's right. Shall we talk about a couple of films that are... Well, one's out now, controversially, on Netflix. And the other one is coming out soon. So shall we talk about Ready Player One? Oh, yes. yes. So Ready Player One, the story, according to IMDb... When the creator of a virtual reality world called the Oasis dies, he releases a video in which he challenges all Oasis users to find his Easter egg, which will give the finder his fortune. That's a pretty rubbish synopsis. It is a rubbish synopsis, and also, but it is, I do 
having read that and also the Empire review spotted in my review that I just call it the Oasis with a capital O, whereas it's actually an acronym, isn't it? For online uh, synthetic something or other. It's like the the S.H.I.E.L.D. acronym. It's like, what's it mean? It means somebody really wanted to have Oasis as an acronym. That's right, it really does. Ontologically, anthropocentric, sensory immersive simulation. Yeah, someone really did want to have Oasis as the name of their virtual world, didn't they? So yes, I completely agree. It is a rubbish synopsis on the IMDb. Uh, so what is the story of Ready Player One? Uh, Ready Player One is set in the none-too-distant future, something I think about 2045, and the world is, much as it is now, only worse. The, uh, the energy crisis has deteriorated. Corporate, uh, everything's being run by corporations to the point that there's indentured servitude. But there is an escape. There is this world, this virtual, this virtual reality platform called the Oasis that you know you can put on your visor and your haptic suit, and you can enter this universe of limitless possibility where you know you can go to Minecraft world or go, you know, scale the cliff with Batman or you know anything involving Warner Brothers IP. <laughs> um, but no, there's um, essentially the, the the founder of this world, uh, James Halliday, played by Mark Rylance as essentially somewhere between uh, the BFG, who's in, in Steven Spielberg's the BFG, and Steve Jobs, you know, B- BF Jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he dies, and, he le- and when he dies, he leaves this video basically saying, uh, I've created a, a scavenger hunt that, you know, through three riddles will lead to three keys, uh, the jade, the silver, and the copper, I think, and those will lead to this Easter egg, you know, the idea of the, of the Easter egg. In, in a video game, and whoever the first person to get to that Easter egg will win my enormous fortune and ownership of the Oasis. Hmm. And for years and years and years, this thing goes undiscovered until finally this one kid named Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan in the film, who lives in the, the stacks in these sort of stacked trailer parks out in, out in Ohio. Yeah, the so um, trailer parks have become trailer cities, and they're like tenement buildings, aren't they? Yeah, and uh, basically he's the first person to kind of crack the first riddle and, and um, win a key. But in doing so, he comes to the uh, the attention of the nefarious IOI systems run by CEO Nolan Sorrento, who is played by, Men- in a bit of nifty uh, metacasting, is played by the villain of the moment, Ben Mendelsohn. Mm. So IOI is Innovative Online Industries, Yeah, I believe it? so. Yeah. You know, they, we know they're evil because they're less catchy. Um, yeah. And uh, essentially, they will do anything. They see the Oasis quite rightly, actually, as the world's biggest economic resource and they want to exploit that, so... But they want to uh, to give it over to the horror of pop-ups and add-ons and freemium. Yeah, that's... Just, essentially, it's the battle against freemium gaming. <laughs> it is the battle against freemium gaming. It's the Star Wars Battlegrounds 2. Never battle. has there been a more important Never. battle than the one about to be waged against freemium gaming. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and of course, as they get closer, as, as the cool kids, led by... Wade Watts, whose username is Parzival, named after Percival, the Arthurian knight who went out on a lone quest to find the Holy Grail. As him and his... He doesn't clan, does he? He doesn't have an affiliated clan, <laughs> but he... And I'm just using these words as if I know what they mean. But he has friends. friends. So he does have a clan. Um, and one of them is called H. Yep. And is this huge... The Hobbit-esque. The Hobbit orc. Orc, yeah. Yeah, like a huge orc guy who also is a virtual mechanic in the world and can fix your vehicles if they get smashed up in one of the many challenges or yeah, one of the many battles they have. And Artemis, or Arthremis, played by Livy Cook, who is this girl who rides the Akira bike, 
to Canada's bike from Akira and is very cool and is a bit of an Oasis like, superstar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and she's a bit like Trinity from The Matrix. And so that's kind of the love interest. And yes, they of course have to fight against the evil corporation and a traditional, I think, a pretty traditional story of the underdogs against the Empire ensues. Yeah, so it's it's an adventure quest made by, still, we haven't mentioned the director, Steven Spielberg, who arguably, when it comes to classic Hollywood cinema, is the the sort of go-to. The king, the king. In terms of the blockbuster, yeah, they definitely is the. Well, the thing about Ready Player One, of course, is that this is based on a book by Ernest Cline, and the book is crammed. I've not read the book, but you've uh, listened to it, haven't you? You listened to the audio. I've listened to it on a yeah on a, on an audiobook as read by Will Wheaton. Ah, that's good. Who is perfect? You know, uh, he's got you know he's incredibly likable and engaging, and and even gets name checked in it. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing there is that this is a book that was I think and yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. It's quite famous because it is literally packed, crammed full with pretty much every pop culture reference from the eighties and into the nineties. Yeah, in terms of if you're a film fan or just into pop culture, it's Fifty Shades for geeks. Right. It's like you know you get to you get to, you get to sit there you know in your big woolly gown with your cut you know glass of wine you know, sort of like, or sit, like or in, in the box or in the yeah in the bathy box just skimming over ooh oh, look at that Ghostbusters spaced yeah. he mentioned spaced they've gone to a world that looks like the uh, the Blade Runner like Blade Runner LA and they now have to you were saying earlier find a Rush album cover yeah well they have to enter the world of a Rush album cover and and that's and that's the thing the the film for obvious reasons. Um, does tend to make its references a bit more mainstream, which makes, you know, obviously Rush album covers and Dungeons and Dragons might be a bit obscure for just a for just, you know, for the filthy casuals. But there, a lot of the stuff, I mean, Spielberg has made a point of, as far as he can, avoiding his own kind of legacy. Although there is... He said that because he didn't want to be accused of vanity. I'm not entirely sure if I believe that. I'm or if they just couldn't get it off, the rights off most of them off Universal. Well, Chuck is Universal, isn't it? So they got them. And I think that Steven Spielberg, if he wanted to put Indiana Jones in this, I think Universal would have said, yes, put Indiana Jones in this because we like you as a filmmaker and we want you to come back and yeah, do films for us as well. And also, it's not going to harm us having Indiana Jones in this. Absolutely. Um, I think it's more of a case that he didn't want to... Because the T-Rex is in it, isn't it? Yeah. There's like a big car chase that's in the trailer and there's the T-Rex. That's really the biggest Spielberg nod to his own films. Well, it's only the films he's directed, because obviously there are Sorry, loads yes. to films he's produced, like Back to the Future. I mean, it's in it's from the novel, but the car that um, Parsifal rides is uh, the DeLorean. Yes, which is a good car. Yeah, it's a great car, but it's kind of part. It's symbolic of one of my main issues with the film that in when listening to the book and listening to the audiobook, it gets, you know it's not something I was paying a great deal of attention. It's one of those things you kind of let wash over you, and it's it's quite fun and very frivolous and very throwaway. It's another thing to sort of see millions and millions of dollars committed to, you know, to massive CGI battles up on the screen. We're all just, for my taste, I mean, Spielberg's a great director and he definitely knows how to shoot an action scene. But it was still just a bit frenetic and I found it difficult to, I just found it a little bit alienating, you know, between the kind of epic scope of this. And then, but then it's like, oh, and there's all these tiny little bits of, you know, of of corporate, you know, corporate um, property, you know. But you know, being being really cynical about it, New Line and Warner Brothers—they're not 
the you know they're not the rebellion they're not the underdogs fighting it they are ioi in this scenario but i think that's the thing and i think here is like let's just get into the nitty-gritty of this you had serious issues with this film yes and you're not alone there are lots of the interweb has had serious issues with this film in terms of you know, various things around it um from you know white savior model storytelling to the vacuity of all of all the pop culture that there's no debate that's happening here and using all these different characters and what are we saying about our modern pop culture i on the other hand thought one this is a really good adventure story and i wasn't entirely sure what i was going to think of it because none of the trailers really grabbed me i like the idea of the film but none of the trailers really grabbed me but the spirit of fun and adventure in this film i just had an absolute blast with i really enjoyed watching this film and also engaging with this film in terms of what are they going to do with this what are they there's a there's a whole thing around atari games and i whispered to you at one point which i don't really do in films i don't talk during films but i whispered to you i bet it's going to do this and it didn't do that in the end but it was one of those things where i wanted to engage there and then with what i was watching because steven spielberg arguably is the godfather or the grandfather of modern pop culture particularly modern pop cinematic culture and here he is making a film that has a lot of this in there um and back to the future of course is universal the score is quoted and alan Silvestri does um replace john williams to do the entire score for the film but his own score is directly quoted when they make a reference to back to the future there's an element of it within in the oasis and And come come back to haunt him come oscar time does that mean that it'll be completely uh, dismissed? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. There's a certain amount. amount. Yeah, there has to be a certain amount. One of the reasons I really liked this film was because the way that it's told is a filmmaker having a great time just telling a really big adventure story with really big, wonderful action sequences. And there's a key action scene at the very beginning of the film, a car chase. And the first time it plays, it's all the sound within the world. It's all the you know, screeching and the revving of engines and the crashing of metal. That scene gets returned to and it's all score because it has a different point to make now. It's it, it's a much more emotional point that it's making. And I thought that's really interesting and that I think is a really good filmmaker who's just doing these things and you don't have to spot what he's doing but the emotion of it you know, really comes through. I think was, I just didn't get... I think I was so... I found the appearance of all these sort of pop culture references so distancing that I found it to get found it difficult to get emotionally involved and I just found myself probably overanalyzing it I mean they're, 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 you know that car chase scene you're talking about I've got two major issues with it one being without offering without any spoiling mm-hmm. there is a certain um, cheat to it or a certain that that obviously this race has been competed, completed thousands millions of times billions of times and nobody's ever tried to do that thing. And I completely agree with you on that. And it's interesting there that you said that you were overanalyzing it, because I was completely analysing this film, because this is, this is Steven Spielberg referencing everything that arguably he created. And I thought, this is very similar to a, to a level in Call of Duty, one of the Call of Duty games, one of the later ones, where I kept getting it wrong because I'm doing what these people are doing, and then after about... A depressing amount of times, I don't know, seven or eight times, I realised, no, I should be, I should be thinking a different way about this, and it's pretty much what is in the film. It took me seven or eight goes of like, yeah, dying to realise that. And in terms of the analysing it, I was thinking, when it's all just sound, I was thinking, is this a reference to Bullet? Is this a reference to the car chase from Bullet, 
where Lalo Schifrin said, I can't score the car chase. It, it doesn't need music, it just needs the engines. It would spoil it if I put any music on there, you just need the sound. And I thought, is he doing that with this? He might not be, but that's, that's what I found really fun about this, was that I was constantly engaging. And it's also a reason why I'm thinking, if you're not steeped in film nerd history like I am, then what are you getting out of this? And I think that it would just work as a really good adventure film. Because it's a very, very traditional story. It's Harry Potter, it's Lord of the Rings, it's Star Wars. It's just white underdog learns that he <laughs> is going to save the world. It's like, you know. I, and I totally get the, the white saviour narrative, and I do think that's an issue. Especially given that certain of his friends are essentially reduced to just kind of tagging along. And, and they're fun, there's some nice things to play, but they don't really have anything to really do beyond enable plot mechanics I'd say that he doesn't either I think this is a and that's why I'm interested to either read the book or listen to the book because listen to it yeah I think I will because I don't think I just don't think that I'd have the patience I'd imagine that reading the book is like reading American Psycho when he's just talking about all the products he's using and all the clothes that he's choosing to wear but imagine just... reading American Psycho and you're using all the same products and wearing all the same clothes <laughs> and, products and killing all the same people <laughs> and nail gunning and uh. um, that would have been interesting actually because if you could be anything within the Oasis you could be Patrick Bateman presumably but um... that's the thing is, how much more interesting would that be Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One but it's Gamer yeah Gamer of course being one of the most underrated films of the last 10 years or whenever it came out I love Gamer it was 2010 wasn't it something like that anyway. yeah, but that's the thing is that I thought Wade Watts so Ty Sheridan has enough charisma not to completely vanish into his Mary Sue role but he is Mary Suing he is just there for us to put ourselves into his character and just be in this amazing world and have this amazing adventure his friends all of whom are, in one way or another, minority characters. Even the woman is a minority character because in this sort of film, I'm sorry, but it's always, it is it is the male lead. And I think this would have been a much more interesting film if Artemis had been the lead. Again, it's all just plot mechanics. Yeah, Nolan Sorrento is just, it, it's just a, it's just a plot mechanic. He just wants to rule. He just wants to have the big things going to yeah, make him lots of money. It's like, that's, that's, as, that's as deep... As he goes. They have a conversation about, um, he and, uh, there's a conversation in the film about 80s high school principals. And one and it was one of my favourite moments in it because it was, I don't know whether it's intentional, presumably it was, it was quite, quite subtle though. You realise how much Ben Mendelsohn looks like the principal from Bre- Breakfast Club. Or like that kind or of, 80s, yeah, looks, yeah, like, those, bit, looks yeah. like the 80s high school principal. He does. He does have that look of the eighties high school principal. It's true. Um, it's not the the you know the trying to be stern, but just a bit. Well, just grey. I think that Ben Mendelsohn can do grey very well. That very he's very lean, and he has a very kind of like lean face. He's just a he's just an efficient character. His face is efficient in terms of how it's structured. His haircut when he's playing a baddie is always really efficient. It's it's just efficiently cut. He's very neat and well put together in that quite chilling, efficient way. But, so, but then Paul, I, Paul Gleason, I stand by that. I think that's, yeah. But I like the fact that he, that when he goes into the Oasis, his avatar, his virtual character still has a suit. It's like a massive version of himself, but with a suit still, because that's his armour. And yeah, small things like he has to make a note of his password and stuff like that. And I thought actually with this film, this is a film that really celebrates youth and the exuberance of youth because there's only really a couple of old characters in it. So you've got Halliday, who's 
virtual avatar is called Anorak, which is, yes, that's very funny. And then you have Sorrento, and Halliday's a cameo for Mark Rylance, really. Uh, in the same way that um, Ogden Morrow, Halliday's sort of, you know, best friend and uh, right hand, is for uh, Simon Pegg. That's right, yeah. And, and the scenes they... they, they but he is a real cameo. And it's interesting, the few scenes that uh, he and Rylance share together... Rhinus is generally being aged down and Peg's generally being aged up so they kind of meet somewhere middle, in the middle. Yeah. It is that. And I thought that the aging down of Rylance was worked pretty well. But yeah, I thought that this is a film that celebrates the exuberance of youth. Sorrento is really the only adult in this film and he's a complete arsehole. And even, the, even all the geeks that he employs to crack the riddles are just really in for the adventure of understanding so, yeah, the riddles and kind of like you know finding the pop culture references and linking them together to find out what Halliday meant and what he was thinking. And I thought, well, this is all about... This is a film about what you love. It's a film about the things that kind of define you in a way and, um, and, and shape the joy that you have in your life. And then... Yeah, finding out more about it. And I suppose there, it's, again, it just gets so messy because you're thinking, well, Spielberg always said that he'll never do an audio commentary is this kind of an audio commentary on his opinions on the pop culture that he helped spawn with his mate George Lucas? And, I think, and there is kind of a, a moral to the film in terms of, you know, enjoying the game but knowing when to turn off and go mm. outside. That, on one hand, it's like, that's, that's great. It's a classic sort of middle way narrative negotiating between the two extremes. On the other hand, I didn't, en- I didn't engage with the message that strongly because... I mean, Steven Spielberg has always been very attuned with the way things are going, and you know, he, him, him, and George Lucas had a conversation like a few years ago now about the uh, the death of the of the cinema that seems to slowly be coming, tr- you know, be coming true uh, in terms of things shifting to VOD. And well, the next film we're going to talk about, of course, yeah, it ties really into that. reinforces that. But it's interesting that I don't think the film has anything to say about nostalgia. Go on. And uh, it's like it's one thing. It's one thing to sort of comment on, you know, oh look at this whole VR thing and the potential dangers of that somewhere down the line. It's like, yeah, but you're not looking at the thing itself. You're not being very self-reflective in terms of like indulging nostalgia and how that this all will feed into that. I think that's in a way, and I don't think that, that the film is saying this. I just think that is a, a limitation of nostalgia in and of itself because this is a film. They always say that sci-fi is not a comment on the future; it is a comment on now. In 2045, I'm not sure that 80s 80s culture and 80s nostalgia is going to be as absolutely feverish as as it is right now. And this is a film that's all about now. It's about the the fact that we just are obsessed with the 1980s and that Jump by Van Halen is the first thing that you hear when you see this film. It's like, why is a 20-year-old in 2045 obsessed with this well, that's the, the, and it's, partly the whole mechanic of the film involving the easter egg hunt is to explain why because everybody's trying to get inside Halliday's head and get, and get you know become gain an intimate passionate understanding of what made him tick and his interests and but I think there is the fact that they all but they all love it they, they just love it so much and it's like I don't think it's like a flaw of the film I think because I think that the film is just commenting on now but I think one of the things that the film shows is that if we're going to have a discussion about nostalgia there's not a lot to discuss. It's like, yeah, we like that stuff, and instead it's quite nice when you hear it remixed, and it's nice when you see the DeLorean having a fight with King Kong or the T-Rex, but it's like... There are limitations. Yeah, it's just like, this is just a nice experience. Well, there's there's not a lot to take away from this. This is not as deep as, say, his other blockbuster films. I don't think there's... You know, Jaws, I think, is one of those films where there's you know, a lot going on. This is one that... 
in and of itself isn't the deepest thing that Steven Spielberg's ever done and you could say it's actually quite shallow but what he's doing with all of this IP I think for me that's where the fascination comes from and that's the thing I don't it's not a science I don't think it's a I don't think really play one's actually a science fiction film because that's just that's just a me- kind of mechanic and it does have certain things to say about the world but it's a fantasy it's, it is it's, it's, it's the ultimate geek fantasy of what if only if what if only your knowledge of pop culture could save the world well it's one of those things where it's like Tron in, in the 80s we had the Matrix at the end of the 90s and really it's it's Ready Player One now but before Tron it was things like um, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court it was more like you know, time travel was the very loose sci-fi concept that then put you into a fantasy setting or it was books in which the main character falls into the into the book yes indeed that's right or it's a never ending story because um, the thing you had to go to another world you yeah. actually had to physically go to like an alien planet or a work of literature or the past but now we've got the digital realm that's right and I think the thing that the film does here is that it does say that there are stakes in the real world even though all of this is digital and the danger is all virtual there's actually still things in the real world like the indentured servitude that you were talking about for these people who are in hock to the big corporation and uh, slave labour basically that does give it proper stakes but you know there's one, there's one thing the Matrix taught us is that you know there are stakes in the digital world too and they're juicy and they're delicious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Which is one of the great... And that's interesting because when I saw The Matrix, and I'm a real apologist for The Matrix sequels, I think that The Matrix is a great trilogy. And I know that not many people agree with that, but I will argue that. I've got a soft spot for Reloaded. It's the first ever yeah. film. It's the first ever 15 I saw in the cinema. Oh, wow. i got a soft spot for both of them. But... The one thing that I thought when I saw the original Matrix was, okay, so the next one, there's going to be a big subplot about people who don't want to know and an army that's going to rise up of people who want to stay ignorant because I'd want to stay in the Matrix. It's like, really? This is what is actually yeah, happening? We want to, you want us to go I out don't... there and rebuild the scorched world? Yeah, no, fuck that. Um, I want to stay here because it's just nicer. And that's one thing that you kind of get a little bit in Ready Player One at the beginning when you see lots of people, just a montage of people in the Oasis... And there's a mum, and, and there's a pot on the stove. That's right, yeah. And the kids say, mum, mum, and she's completely in world, the world, yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, that's good, because this is a shithole world. And when we were watching it, there's a car chase, and I thought, is that Camden? That looks like England. Is that Camden? It turns out it's Birmingham. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, so well, actually, there's just something about the brickwork that you don't get in other countries. But yeah, I thought, this is, I think, has enough stakes to make me care about this. There are massive issues with that. Olivia Cook, sorry, the Artemis character, kind of says, oh, you know, this is not me, this is not how I look, you wouldn't like how I look. Then when you see how she does look, you think, I think the film thinks it's being really brave. This is not, I'm sorry, but that is that is, that is a laughably slight yeah, we, defect yeah, that we, you've we, got. This is uh, Jared Butler in the Phantom of the Opera territory here, not yeah. even that far. Or it's, um, what's his name, Tom Cruise in Vanilla Sky. He's like, well, he's got a bit of a wonky mouth. He's got a touch of Bell's palsy about him. But, but he still but looks like Tom but Cruise. But he's still Tom Cruise. And what you were saying about this, it's just too frenetic. There's too much going on. I actually thought the opposite, particularly when you get a lot of characters on screen at once, I thought there is a joy here because in every shot you can see the through line. You can see the things that are window addressing, but, but there is something that Spielberg can do where he says, this is what you have to look at and you're not lost. Well, that, he said something about he said something almost exactly to that effect in terms of if you look through the windshield, you can see the plot of this. 
everything out the side windows is you know it's just it's just scenery but my issue is that this film is like largely just looking you know looking in the re- looking in the uh, rearview mirror yeah, and, I and, and, I, and, and I just don't think I didn't get very much out of that I see I don't think that it is looking in the rearview mirror I thought it was a case of of just looking around constantly but just loving what I was seeing it's um yeah we can't talk about because there's a really I think there's a moment in there that even you liked um that is because of course Spielberg was really big friends with Stanley Kubrick and there is a reference to a Stanley Kubrick film in there that I that think is just as mad as a laundry shoot full of badgers yeah it is it's as it's as mad as assholes but it's it seems to be him saying, I'm going to take one of my dear friend's most cherished works and in five minutes do a commentary on how it's inspired pop culture and also try to recreate what he achieved back then. And it's like, and that's what I loved about it. I thought, okay, we're not going to do anything in this film. This film's going to be tied to quite a conventional quest storyline. But the things... And the locations you're going to choose to place the quest in are where the real thrill of this film's going to come from. Totally. And that was, I thought, the best sequence of the film. Um, yeah, that's the thing, because it, it's immersive, and it is... And, and I, I found that, that, that sequence quite exhilarating in a way that I didn't most of the rest of it. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, you never guess who owns the rights to that film. Yes, indeed. Well, one as it turns out, owns a lot of really cool stuff. Of course, the one thing that isn't really referenced directly is The Matrix. And it's like, well, because this is The Matrix. You're, this, is, this is basically The Matrix story you're telling here. So therefore, even for this film, as unsubtle as this film is, I think even that would be a bit too much on the nose for you to put Neo in there as well or something. Particularly as Artemis is basically Trinity. Was there anything that you liked about it other than no, the I, I thought, Akubin, that's that the thing is, I I thought it was fun. I thought it was perfectly passable, but just I don't, fine. I don't I don't have anything in. I don't have any. I don't just don't didn't find it was particularly interesting. I didn't think it had anything to say about all the stuff it was throwing up on the screen. But in terms of being Spielberg and a commentary on what he was doing, I'd did you not rather just watch an original Spielberg blockbuster? Uh, I think the triumph for this film is that I didn't think that, and I. But I still don't think that. I think it's one because it's you know it's one of those things when you think I could watch Kill Bill again and actually yeah do quite like that film, but I would much prefer to go back and watch The Bride with White Hair or Fist of Fury or any of the films that inspired it because they kind of got it down pat and better more than he did. But yes, and this is I mean this actually I suppose is Spielberg's version of Kill Bill, isn't it? I mean yeah. it's all of his passions. It's. Um, See, that's interesting. <laughs> I think that you're going to watch it again. I think that you'll have things to say about... And not that they're going to be good things, but there is. I think there is a really interesting thing that's happening here because it's Spielberg. If it was any other director doing it, I don't think it would be as interesting as him because... Well, I don't think it wouldn't look the same because the same decisions were made. I mean, could you imagine Michael Bay directing this fucking film? It would be awful. Unwatchable. Yeah. I just think, I, I think one way I think Spielberg, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't owe us anything. He's made some of the, you know, the all-time great works of cinema. But on the other... For which we have repaid him. <laughs> I mean, I have bought so many of his films on all the formats, but anyway. And, uh, and after... After watching Ready Player One, you might buy some more yeah, Warner yeah. Brothers films. And some... <laughs> that's Actually, that's a really good point. Glad that you said that, because I thought this is a really good film. And you said this is like Angry Birds or like the Emoji movie. And it's like, no. And the reason that I don't think that it is like that, and I think it's more like the Lego movie, is that I didn't feel ever like I was being sold something. And I didn't feel like I had to rush out and buy something. 
I felt like they'd used the IP to tell a good story well, and a really exciting adventure. Do you remember the, the main thing that my Angry Birds comparison came from is that, you know, very early on it has Minecraft World. You never guess who's releasing a Minecraft movie next year. Is it the makers of Angry Birds? Yeah, no, it's, it's Warner Brothers. They own the IP to um, Minecraft. Oh, right. But, I but, think that, but I think you don't spend much time in the Minecraft. It's like I, a I passing think, thing, isn't I think it? That, like... I think that just kind of soured me quite early on because it was really? immediately like, oh, look, it's Minecraft. Oh, you're doing a Minecraft movie next year, aren't you? Oh, for fuck's sake. And that's another really interesting thing is that I do like watching films with you because I sometimes find you completely <laughs> unreadable because I think, well, that was really good. And Rob seems to enjoy it. And then the next day you say, no, I don't like that very much. Or like Last Flag Flying, which I thought was great and overwhelming. And you were sort of like going, oh, that's a three-star film. It was like, did we watch the same film? And this one I thought, yeah, one, I thought you enjoyed it as much as I did and was quite surprised when you didn't. But I think it's also one of those things where, as I said at the time, when it comes to corporations making movies, there are certain things that you have to to stomach, like, and I think I used the um, example of Bullworth, the Warren Beatty film, being a Fox movie, owned obviously by Rupert Murdoch, but it's a film in, that says politicians are in hock to to big business, and they're having to buy airtime, and they're having to like you know, basically court the big press barons, so therefore they can't be honest people. And so, well, that's from a, but you got Fox money to, to say that. Is that not a contradiction? It's like, so, well, I think at some point, yeah, the film just has to stand on its own particularly if it's made by an interesting artist I think if it was Michael Bay I think that it would be very very different in how IP was used it, it, it would be there to sell you something because he just wants to sell whatever he's told to sell and if he isn't told to sell anything he'll elect to sell something yeah I think I think the issue is just when it's so overt so like you know I, I get your point about Bullworth but it's not like he was standing in front of like advertising for a Fox affiliate at the time but there's a thing in the film when he says, why did we sell the airwaves? Wouldn't they be worth three billion to the public today? Why not just give it away then, and then we won't have to fake? Rupert Murdoch paid for you to say that. <laughs> yeah, for me, that's where the interest of this film comes from in terms of, of thinking about that. And a filmmaker who is choosing... Because, of course, he never directed The DeLorean or I don't know if he did like yeah, some second unit stuff on Back to the Future, but... This is him saying, I'm going to take the DeLorean from that film that everyone thinks of as a Steven Spielberg film. It's actually a Robert Zemeckis film, and I'm now going to properly direct this. Yeah, I'm actually quite glad that I've seen that now. Yeah, yeah but, you know, the uh, talking about sort of, you know, geek, get a fan, sort of fan service. Obviously, it, had, it, had, it has the holy hand grenade in Ready Player One, and they don't do the countdown. And that's a really interesting thing, because that's the reason why I think this film, why I'm really interested to see how this film does, because... There's a certain sphere of nerdism, me, who really likes the way that he's dealing with all the IP and all the things and all the meta-commentary and blah, 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 all that stuff. There's another area of nerdism, you, for whom it's like, well, if you're going to do it, you have to obey the rules of what you're taking from and that holy hand grenade. But they didn't do it right. So therefore, why have they just used that, just to say that name? And, there's, and there is a fair point to that. And I thought, well, did they actually have the countdown, but it at that moment of the film it slowed it down too much so they had to cut it out to your point then well then just don't do it and it's like well yeah that is that is true that is true um, if you're going to pander do it right is that the schism there or, or the tension that comes between a lot of this film is going to be pandering to people who get really who just have a geek gasm over some of the stuff that's appearing on screen versus having to tell a story that has a certain drive and doesn't stop at the climax to have another in joke 
is that a tension that not even Steven Spielberg can reconcile? Perhaps. I mean, you definitely uh, in- include the uh, clip the, from Holy Grail. Grail. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, to be honest, I hadn't seen the Holy Grail in so long that the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch, I had to place that for a minute. It was like, I know that. What's it from? Oh, it's from Holy Grail. I haven't seen Holy Grail in years. As in decades. But we have seen Jabberwocky, which is, in some aspects, give, a very similar film. It is, yes. Arguably, in some aspects, a better film, not as funny, and just it's it's a wilder film, if if that is um, at all possible. But I was always a love of Brian Man because that, I think, is the best comedy it's ever made. one of the best films ever made. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, dude, yeah. Yeah, I'll go along with that one. Best films I ever had made. a conversation with family a couple of days ago in terms of what's the film that you could, like, if it's on TV, and you, you will always watch it, and it's Life of Brian. That's certainly one of my ones, yeah. I remember Life of Brian. I remember my uncle was obsessed with that. Look, Ready Player One goes off on loads of tangents. We're going to do the same. I think Spielberg might listen to our podcast <laughs> and decide to base it and the structure on our podcast. Anyway, my uncle was obsessed with Life of Brian when I was a kid and he would rent it out on video because this was when you couldn't buy them because they were so expensive. He'd rent it out on video pretty much every weekend. And I remember watching it and it just being the funniest thing that I'd seen. It was like, you know... Airplane was the first thing that made me cry laughing, and this was the second one. And I remember when Michael Palin as the cured leper, who's annoyed that he's been cured by Jesus because he doesn't have a job anymore, he doesn't have a livelihood. You're cured, mate. 15 years behind the bell and proud of it. And he calls Jesus a bloody do gooder. (laughs) And I remember thinking that's so naughty, because I was about, I don't know, eight or nine when I saw this film for the first time, thinking that's so naughty that he called Jesus a bloody do gooder. (laughs) And thought that was the funniest thing. And it was like, what is this film? And of course, there was also the uh, first film where I saw a fanny because there is full frontal female nudity and actually male nudity as well, isn't there? It's kind of it's amazing that was a 15 back then and not an 18. Anyway. Judith, mother, mother, Judith. (laughs) (laughs) So, because it's obviously set in uh, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and had the wonderful line, leave that Welsh tart alone. (laughs) It's, it's got my, it's got basically my favourite joke in anything ever. Yes, it is. And which, it's one of my favourites uh, as well. But go on. Which is um, when uh, Brian is, is is speaking to the masses and they've they've, they've all camped outside his his flat. Basically, <laughs> it's like you're all individuals, and they all chorus back, "Yes, we're all individuals." I'm not. <laughs> which is just so, <laughs> it's so clever that we are all individuals. I'm not. <laughs> So brilliant. Oh, you're right. There's nothing in Ready Player One as good as as Life of Brian. But then again, Life of Brian is up there with Jaws. I mean, it's one of those perfect movies. So yes, for me, it will be. Oh, well, I was going to say it would be interesting to see where Spielberg goes next. He's kind of doing. He might be doing West Side Story, but that might get parked. He said that he's going to be shooting Indiana Jones Five this time next year in the UK, and it's like, can we not do that, Stephen? Because one, Harrison Ford is too old. I'm sorry, I don't want to get ages, but he just is. Two, Shia LaBeouf's not going to be in it because that didn't really work out the way that you wanted that to work out for Shia LaBeouf. I would be way more interested to see modern Shia LaBeouf in, yeah, in the too. new indeed. I would, as I think, you know what, there was a time, I thought that Shia LaBeouf was alright in that film. I thought I was going to hate him in it. I thought it was alright. Much more interested to see modern Shia LaBeouf, you're right, in a new Indiana Jones film. Like, like you know, proper... Post Nymphomania, Borg, yeah. McEnroe, Fury, Shia LaBeouf. That's right. It's absolutely 
biting the heads off snakes. Actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Harrison Ford is obviously in great shape, even though he does keep trying to kill himself in planes. But I just don't think that he is going to be able to do the rough and tumble of Indiana Jones because he is going to be 70. That's what I, I just I think they will flashback. I think they'll flashback. I think they'll use him to bookend. They'll do they'll do what they did in Young Indiana Jones with Old Indiana Jones. Yeah. Well, Chris Pratt was being talked about around the time. He of could do it. Jurassic I mean, he, I just yeah. But I kind of think. I mean, why? He's already doing it. <laughs> but he's he's already doing, doing it in everything else. That's right, he really is. And it's like, why are we doing this? Look, we have three perfect films. As the Prince Charles cinema says, it's the Indiana Jones trilogy on the big screen. And it is a trilogy. There's only three Indiana Jones films. And it's like, yes, yes, that's right. Because there are already three Indiana Jones films. And they're wonderful. <laughs> so let's not... Uh, Joe, I hope the next... Let's not spoil it. We're having a fifth one, even though there wasn't a fourth one. Anyway, it's fine. What? <laughs> I'd argue the the Die Hard trilogy is hmm? definitely yeah. Uh, well, two though is shit. I've, I've got a, I've got a soft spot for two, just only because of the entire the horribly hilariously chroma keyed part where he gets fired out of the plane in the in the, oh, ejector, the ejector seat. seat. <laughs> just, it is. I mean, that's so clearly not there. Shocking that film. I'm sorry, but that was a film that I thought was shit. And then when I watched it in widescreen, when Fox did a widescreen video release of it, I thought, oh, it's much better now. It's a, it's a much better film. Then I watched it again in widescreen and thought, oh, no, it's just the fact that you could actually see the picture and, and the compositions made it a better experience to view that time. But this does not hold up. The three is very good, I think. But, of course, it wasn't going to be a diehard film, was it? It was going to be Simon well, no, Says. Well, no, was two. No, no, was... Oh, yes, of course, one wasn't. Well, one was based on a book, wasn't it? But I've never read By Roderick Thorpe. Uh, That's right. Called Nobody Lives Forever or something like that. Uh... Is it? Yeah, well, I thought it was called something like Danger Hour or something. But I think and I think Sinatra wanted to be in it when it was originally yeah, That's right. Yes. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. That's not a James Bond film. Anyway, Jake Peralta's favorite film. <laughs> so, is there anything else to say about Ready Player One, other than other than sequel? <laughs> other than it's prompted a discussion about loads of other films, which I can't imagine any other film we'd talk about if I weren't. Yeah, that as a meta-commentary in and of itself, the fact that this is a film that you then talk about lots of other things, lots of other pop culture things, in a way that doesn't seem to really have a lot of structure. Although, no, that's that's not true, because I think that the Ready Player One does have a proper through line, and it and it's two and a half hours, because I was thinking, mm, two and a half hours? When you're told Raiders in an hour and 55 minutes, and it's perfect, and Jaws in under two hours as well, it's perfect. But I wasn't bored, and I actually had a really good time watching the film, so... I'll be very interested to see it again on a small screen. Uh, see yes. It, yeah, see if it holds up when you remove the... when you kind of diminish the spectacle. But you're not going to come and see it at the IMAX, are you? And no, I'm going to be in Sri Lanka. Yes, of course you are, yes. So I'm going to go and see it at the IMAX with friend Adrian and Jonathan in IMAX 3D. It's going to so. turn out that you saw it in exactly the right size. You're going to go and see it and be like, Oh no, it's horrible! <laughs> <laughs> They've just increased it one magnitude larger and it's unwatchable. <laughs> Let me take two stars off my review. I, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing it again in IMAX. I think it's going to be a really good IMAX experience. The same way that I love watching Last Jedi in IMAX. And Oh, yeah. But then, yeah, I really, really like The Last Jedi. Yeah, seeing that in IMAX, I thought, yeah, I might come and see this again in IMAX and then just never got around to it. We should watch. We'll watch it. Oh, we should do a... We are going to do, yes. When that's out soon, isn't it? April? Yeah. April? When that gets a DVD release, we'll do a proper review of it. Um, DVD. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Sorry, Blue Ray? Yeah, Blue. Yeah, 4K yeah. even. Yeah, we're going to have to, you know, you're talking about flushing through in your library. Yes, yes, and we'll get 4K. We can't actually watch the 4K right now, but <laughs> we will get. Um, we've got 4K telly. But uh, yes, we will watch the Blu ray. Um, sorry, for a minute I thought you were going to say EST. No. Electronic sell through. Yes, I like the physical media because I'm old. Anyway, so Ready Player One is one of two sci fi films we're going to talk about on this podcast. The other one is a proper sci-fi film. Pure sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Genre of ideas, Rob. Genre of ideas. No, it is a genre of ideas. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about Annihilation. And this is one of those where I don't want to annoy Rob by over-criticising a film that I really enjoyed but didn't think was as amazing as a lot of people, including my learned colleague here. Vince it is, but I'm looking forward to finding out why it works so much for them. Quickly before that... This, of course, is the film that Netflix bought to that was sold to them by Paramount. So they obviously bought Cloverfield Paradox as well. So Paramount just had a, some kind of fire sale on their films they don't think are going to do very well at the cinema. Kind of surprised that they sold this one to Netflix because it's Natalie Portman. Alex Garland is writing and directing Ex Machina, I think, made a tidy profit. It is an adventure movie. It is visually stunning. When I was watching it, I was thinking there are certain shots here that I would like to have seen on a big screen. It's certainly not Cloverfield Paradox. I mean, it's a really good film. And it's why have they? Why did they sell it to not even a rental window first? It just went straight to Esford. Just you get it if you subscribe to Netflix. There it is, just there for you. Because I think a Netflix spent an absolutely phenomenal amount of money on it. I, I don't know the actual, but they are absolutely burning through cash acquiring these titles because they spent was it 40 million was it 50 million for Cloverfield because, because Cloverfield cost 40 million and they spent 50 million on it and then 5 million for the Super Bowl ad but I would imagine they've had more than 10 million downloads so in terms of the virtual like yeah, revenue stream that they made from it I think the Cloverfield is more than paid for itself it would be interesting to see if they paid 50 million for Annihilation as well because I wouldn't say that this is a film that you would want to spend 50 million on because one it's not a franchise film it's an ideas film it does have action elements to it but it's not an action movie they could have called this Cloverfield Annihilation and it would be no less a Cloverfield film than, than, mm, than, than Cloverfield than, than Paradox no because then it would have to have a couple of horribly crowbarred in elements where it's like oh just yeah that's, them, that wasn't you have them just drinking a slusho in one scene I think it would be one of those things where they would it would be the corporation would be called the Cloverfield something or other. And that would the be Cloverfield f- Shimmer. And that'd be like that. fine. It'd be vaguely distracting for a moment and it would be a far more worthy addition it would to the Cloverfield franchise. I don't know. But it would be a better film than Cloverfield Paradox. And the bit where I can see this is actually based on a limited cinematic release made almost thirty million. Yes, in the States. And that's the other really interesting thing here is that this film I'm not sure that it would have made as much money if, if it was so if it was easier to see. That's right, yeah. I think it's one of those films where they've made money because people are making a point of going to see this film because it's a bit of a slippery slope we're on if this is the sort of film that's going to go straight to Esford and miss out on all those other revenue windows, then that could be the death of cinema for mid-range intelligent movies. I kind of think that films like this should get a release because if it's Black Panther and Tomb Raider and that's all that's on the screens, then I think everyone's going to stay at home and watch films that are going to make them engage. It's going to be blockbuster apocalypse because, you know, they're they're already churning out. I mean, this week alone, 
we've got Tomb Raider, mm. we've got Pacific, um, Rim? Pacific Rim Uprising, we've got A Wrinkle in Time, we've got, you know, it's this week alone. And Black Panther's still... And Black Panther's still in the cinema. Yeah. These films are gonna are gonna lose money, and they're gonna lose lots of money. And this, you know, and that's and this is you know, this is clearly the best place the studios could think to put them, trying to scrabble out of the way of all the Marvel. How far away can I get from Black Panther and Infinity War and Solo and anything that Disney's mm. gonna put out? And they're basically gonna end up in these clusters of like the not the mega blockbusters, but at least the mid-range blockbusters. That you know, in in a summer five years ago, might have had might have had you know been able to find legs mm. if, if they end up being sufficiently good. But this, you know, they're just going to get swallowed up. I think you're right, but I think it's one of those things where we've talked for a number of years now about a blockbuster apocalypse of like there are too many blockbusters coming out to make money, and there are some that flop and flop hard, like Independence Day, whatever it was fucking called, regurgitated resurgence, regurgitation. Yes, you yeah, no one went to see that. And there were I other did. films. Yeah, I know you did because you, bless your heart, will see anything because because yeah, it's it might be before. good. Yeah, that's right. It's like it was all about before. I remember when I was your age, and it's like I have to see this one because it might be good. Because I, I need to have an opinion on it. Wait till you hit your forties and realise you're gonna die. <laughs> Suddenly, Independence Day regurgitation doesn't have the, the same shine to it. It's like, and I did watch a bit of it on Sky Cinema and thought, fuck me, this is just interminable. But it just seems as if there are films that are coming out now and they're yeah, flopping hard. But it doesn't seem to stop the juggernaut. It's, they'll say, well, we'll make it back eventually on worldwide release and then the different windows that we'll put it into. And the next one could be Black Panther. The next one could do a billion in a month. And, and presumably when they put the budgets out there, those budgets account for every single penny that's been spent on anything in the vicinity of that film. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's like, when you think that... Disney has a film that has made a billion dollars. And it's like, okay, right, let's say that yeah, a lot of that goes to the theatre, so let's say that you have made $400 and it million. Isn't it like a 60 40 yeah, split? I really don't think it is anymore. I think is Disney are fairly. Oh, Disney are, yeah. And also, of course, uh, Disney are very aggressive in their other windows because that's why Odium wouldn't show Alice in Wonderland all those years ago. So we've got this model now where let's say it's you know, 55, um, 50 50 or 55 45 to Disney. So they've made five hundred and fifty million off one film, say, you know, roughly. That's a lot of money. And they've got Infinity Wars coming up, and they've also got Mary Poppins at the end of the year, and they've got Solo, and these well, films got wrinkling time this week, and that has made some money in the states. I think it's one of those where everyone wants it to be good because it's a positive message film, but everyone's having to ignore their critical faculties to say that it's good. It seems to be. Whereas you know, Annihilation. Multiracial female-led sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, and it's like, and this doesn't get a big push from Paramount. This is Paramount who don't have lots of big films to push. This is Natalie Portman, who you could argue is one of the great actresses of her generation and is good in this. Anyway, so that's a whistle-stop tour through the weirdness and the vagaries right now of of how a mid-range movie like this is going to struggle more and more to get a seat at the cinema table and will more and more be appearing on Netflix. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, part of me is happy that I can just turn on my Netflix and watch this, not have to battle with an annoyed audience who are bored because they thought they were going to get something else. But there is still something about seeing it on the big screen that is nice. Okja was great on a big screen. It just really was, and it's like, this should be seen on the big screen first, I think, but anyway. So, 
Annihilation. Annihilation. You're more of a fan of this film than me, so what's this film about? Um, I'll read the IMDb synopsis and then I'll expand upon it. A biologist signs up for a dangerous secret expedition into a mysterious zone where the laws of nature don't apply. That's, that's, that's actually show, better yeah. than Ready Player One. Yeah, and Natalie Portman plays this biology professor uh, called Lena, who uh, whose husband suddenly appears. Uh, her husband, who's played by Oscar Isaac, who obviously worked with Alex Garland in Ex Machina, yeah. appears after having been missing for a year. And all of a sudden she finds herself swept up into this sort of mysterious cover-up of, of this zone called, I think, I think it's called Zone X, sorry, Area X, um, which is essentially this giant pearlescent bubble that has just, just appeared somewhere on the coast. I mean, yeah, I think you're going to believe it's sort of Florida or Louisiana, somewhere fairly swampy. Mm. And it's just slowly expanding. And anything that goes into the bubble, be it man or machine or animal, just doesn't come back. Mm. And she and a team... Um, are essentially sent in to investigate as her as she discovers her husband was, and what they discover is that the laws of nature within that within the uh, the bubble. Are we any spoilers away? Are we? No, within the within the shimmer have been altered, but altered in such a way that actually holds up to sort of there's a, there's a logic and a rigor there as there was in Ex Machina. Mm. Yeah, that's a pretty good place to stop, I think, because like, one of the things there is that when Oscar Isaac's character comes back, he is ill. Mm. Something has happened to him. This was a film that I, I really liked the first hour. I thought, oh yeah, so this sort of film. And then for the next fifteen minutes, it was like, all right, it's this sort of film. Oh, it's this sort of film. And then by the end, it was like, oh okay, it was that sort of film. Okay. I really liked the first hour. The way that it was set up, what the the mystery was, and the dread of what was happening. That there's just this thing happening, and no one knows what it is, and they're sending in drones. Yeah, nothing has given them any answers, and this thing is expanding. Not quickly. Not aggressively. But it's expanding. And there doesn't appear to be a way to stop it. And the dread of what would happen when you step into it, I thought, this is the reason why I like these sort of films. Genre of ideas, the genre of exploring the unknown. As the film went on, for me, I thought, this is actually abiding by quite generic tropes of films like Alien or Predator and by the end I thought I think you might be using unusual sound design to cover up your lack of ideas now I'm not not enjoying this I'm still really having a good good time with this film and it's two hours it's a solid two hours and it barrels along really good I just thought it was going to be more unusual than it turned out to be that's the thing I really liked the progression of the of the transformations the mutations the aberrations they encounter how they become more fantastical and more extreme but do always hew to this fundamental idea that matter and energy have somehow been put through this prism and that you know if you can and you can look at something and you and for example there are and is is it i don't if, if, if you think this is a spoiler sort of but there are these trees that seem to be taking human form they seem to be assuming they look like people mm. and you see them and they look at them and they, and they immediately are able to say okay well there's actually a certain element of human DNA that gives us this form and somehow this DNA has passed into these so that, yeah that's not really a spoiler but the so we have a spoiler section for this yeah, I we, think we, we need we to have need a spoiler to because section it's... Um, but let's talk about it generally about the film before we get onto the spoiler section so you said you thought this film was a masterpiece yes I think it isn't <laughs> um, because I don't think it's I don't think it's ideas are bold enough or the execution of its ideas are bold enough for this to be a masterpiece but I value your opinion 
And when you say masterpiece, my ears prick up. So why is it a masterpiece? Because I can't think of another film in recent years that has dealt with the idea of transformation. The fact that this, this bubble, this shimmer exists. And films like, typically in sci-fi, aliens are by some means or other either malevolent or benevolent. You know, or you know, malevolent or benign. They are, you know, they are either of the, the sort of the predator or the alien model or the, you know, they are either here to destroy us or they are here to to aid us in some means. And I think one of the other best sci-fi films in recent years was Arrival. Mm. Um, and then Arrival kind of posits the idea that what if an alien species came to us, but their viewpoint and their language is so far, you know, that we've got to try and breach that gap. This film takes that, in my opinion, a logical step further. Of what if we encounter an alien force that is so alien? It's killing people that pass into this area, making them very ill, sort of really affecting their biology in such a way that maybe they can't continue to live. But it's exploring because it's clearly operating on such a different understanding to us. You know, maybe it doesn't even have sentience as we under, as we understand it. And the idea and how it was looking at the themes of life and death and transformation, you sort of, you know, big sort of knotty thematic sci-fi. And I sort of get, get I know these sort of your, your criticisms of the end sequence um, or, or the final act, which or, or you sort of seem to enjoy it less as it went on. Yeah. And I enjoyed it more because I think it took that to the logical conclusion. And yeah, got, with, got without, necess- without stretching it too thin. And the way it does it is also incredibly, you know, incredibly beautiful I think Rob Hardy's cinematography in terms of how he captures the light filtering through the uh, filtering through the trees and again that kind of it's almost like there is that pearlescent sheen to everything it's a very well post-produced film I think damned by faint praise no 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 this is a film that it will be interesting to see the cinematography that was captured on location and I think it's one of those where a lot of it is location photography which I think is really important for this film I think they did shoot it around Florida I think that you need that because it needs to be based in a reality that you then enhance. And the enhancement in terms of the the lushness and the weird alien colours of the foliage is really impressive. <laughs> they shot some of it, believe it or not, in Windsor Great Park. Wow. As in yeah. Windsor. <laughs> yes, because she was... Yeah, I do remember them talking about Natalie Portman shooting the film. Here, that's, a, that's the thing is that I had no idea what this film was about because I purposely avoided everyone raved about the trailer. They, and I purposely avoided it. So I did not know what this film was going to be they over, about. They also shot it in Hokum, in Norfolk. Wow, okay. And I think that beach, based the be- there's a beach in oh, yes. this film, might be in Norfolk. Yeah, it is very flat and the plane's very flat. So that's oh, then, that just takes the sci-fi element out of it, all the grotesque aberrations. <laughs> yeah, dude. They <laughs> just shot Norfolk. It's, it's just... It's just Decades and centuries of inbreeding. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to our Norfolk listeners, we have no fucking Norfolk listeners <laughs> because they've not got the internet yet. <laughs> um, that thing uh, that looks like the anteater with the skull head and the fangs. That's just that's, that's just Dave. That's just the local pet. Um, no, there's, uh, so that's the thing is that yeah, one of the real strengths of this film, and there are strengths of this film, and one of the real strengths of it is that it looks alien, and it looks alien in, in a way that Tarsum sings the fall looked like another world it went he did it was all location photography in that film but it looked like he had conjured up a fantasy realm because he just went to the most amazing locations and here it's one of those things where you have swamps and you but when you slightly augment it with just a real vividness or just unusual colors that shouldn't be there you literally are depicting a reality that has been ever so slightly skewed. And it's like, well, that's... Yeah, this is good. I'm, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. I think 
One of the things for me is that the characters, I'm not sure, have too much more depth to them than in Ready Player One. I think that, uh, so Natalie Portman goes in with a team of people. Tessa Thompson, who of course was Valkyrie in Thor Ragnarok, is kind of like a sympathetic friend to her. There's Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays Dr. Ventress, who is the leader of this group. Who's... She's a psychologist. Yeah, and she's kind of been sending people in and basically is now going in herself for her own reasons. So Gina Rodriguez and Tuva... Tuva Novotny. Novotny. What was she in? Because she was good. A little good. So she was... She's, in... uh, she's uh, I believe she's Swedish. Yeah, with a name like Tuva Novotny, I think she... Well, she, was she, in is... a, she was in A War and Borg McEnroe. Right. A, a film that we literally referenced. Yes, it all, it all ties in. Uh, she was, uh, I believe, McEnroe's wife. Sorry, Borg's wife. In Borg McEnroe, yeah, she was uh, uh, Mariana Simonescu. Right, we have Gina Rodriguez, who was in Deep Space, not Deep Space, Deep Water, Horizon, she's in Jane the Virgin, she is Jane the Virgin. And they all have their reasons for going in, but I thought, to, to be completely honest, the psychology behind these characters I don't think is, is that much deeper than, than in Ready Player One. Well, the thing is, I think... But that's not to say that it's wrong, I think, I think it's that you could argue that it's one of those things that Walter Hill did. You know, Walter Hill always said that he never wanted his characters to really have a lot of psychological depth. It was all about how they reacted in that moment. So you get you know, great films like Southern Comfort, where their characterization comes through the way that they respond and to the situation. And there's definitely a touch of Southern Comfort to this. Yeah, in terms of... but, there was, but that's the thing, is I kind of thought, so this is, I'm not sure that this is a, a great insight into the human condition in terms of the great sci-fi, I don't think that... I, mean, I think that The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is arguably less of a sci-fi than this, is a better look at an alien arriving on Earth and just having weird interaction with the people and with the culture and with the environment. That, I think, is a masterpiece. It's a tougher watch than this film, but... And, and I like the structure of the film, that it's you know, flashbacks, flash-forwards. Um, I think partly in order to get into why I think this film is a masterpiece, I think we need to sort of just uh, get into the spoiler zone. All right, then. But Go on. that's the thing. It's This film is... And I've, I've seen films deal with similar themes, but it was... I don't know, something something about it in terms of its treatment of themes really caught me off guard. In, ter- in terms of the idea of life and death and transformation, I think it's partly that I don't think there's really been a sci-fi that's quite done this in maybe quite the same way during my adult life Hmm. then I think we need to think about that it did remind me of films as I was watching it and I was thinking what are these and we'll we'll talk more uh, Stalker to a degree Uh, although I I know you hate Tarkovsky and it it wasn't Stalker that it reminded me of it was other films other really great sci-fi films Okay, well, let's wrap it up in terms of if you haven't seen Annihilation, we're going to say goodbye to you here. So thank you very much for listening to episode 41 of the Electric Chalice podcast. And please watch Annihilation. And please watch Annihilation. And don't... And really play one. And, and don't watch um, Cloverfield Paradox, because that, you know, we want to encourage... Or mute. Or mute. <laughs> Do you know what? Watch mute. It's fine. I don't... No, don't. Because it's boring as shit. It's, it was a film that... God, don't, that was boring. Don't watch Cloverfield Paradox. Watch Mute and give it half your attention. Watch Annihilation and give it all your attention. Watch Ready Player One, whatever. I would say. (laughs) (laughs) I would actually say watch Cloverfield Paradox because it's watchable if mediocre. Mute is the same length as Annihilation. Watch Mute if you want, if only to then watch Annihilation and see how a film at two hours long should be paced (laughs) and should be structured and then say god mute was shit and then watch annihilation which for all of my criticisms i do think is a very good film and also watch ready player one because 
it, I also think it's a very good film. So next time we'll be talking, I don't know what we're talking about next time. Shitface Sound of Music. Shitface Sound of Music. <laughs> um, well, this this weekend, or in the next few days, I am seeing I'm seeing Unsane tomorrow night, then I'm seeing Tomb Raider, then I'm seeing A Wrinkle in Time, then I'm seeing um, Pacific Rim Uprising, then I'm seeing... I mean, what else am I seeing? I'm seeing um, Proud Mary, and then I'm seeing um, Blockers, and then if I can really find the time, I'll be asked, I may see Peter Rabbit. The thing is, you're then going on holiday, on an amazing holiday, so it might be a few weeks before we do another one of these. It might be, well, yeah, unless you want a pencil one in for next week, it's going to be, you'll probably have to wait till I get back from Sri Lanka. That's right. And as I'm going to be moving flats a week on Friday, I'm not sure we are going to have enough time to squeeze in one. Oh, wow. It could be a month before we do another one. So well, We've had a couple in the last few weeks. Yeah, we haven't we? Yeah, yeah is... we've given them their money's worth. They're free money's worth. <laughs> but, so. uh, but uh, dear listeners, this, is, this will be the last podcast you hear recorded in this in this hallowed space yes indeed because i will be this particular flat. set of reverberations and echoes that you've come to cherish and that's right so and the next flat i move into will be a ground floor flat so it could be that there's too much noise to record in the flat i might need to get a portable microphone it could be recorded at work yeah i have to stay in the office and do it there but anyway i haven't talked about my foot yet <laughs> As of recording, I am nine days away, hopefully, actually eight days away from being off of crutches and out of my orthopaedic boot. <laughs> so um, so the grand adventure of shattering my toes while trying to get healthy is almost at an end. Huzzah. What a time that was. Anyway, thank you for listening. And um, But if you have watched Annihilation, then hang on because we're going to talk about why we think it's good, why we don't think it's as good as maybe a masterpiece suggests. We're going to talk about spoilers, basically. Shall we get into spoilers? Yes. Insert suitable sound cue. <laughs> Spoiler zone. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where nonsense is transmuted into... Into sense, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Where the arcane talking around points for fear of giving spoilers, because it's a film you don't want to know any, a huge amount about before you watch it, becomes refracted into a much clearer view of what we're going to talk about. God, that was a really... <laughs> ironically cack-handed way of talking about that. Anyway, so, reality is what I'm truly gone out the window now, obviously. I have reasons why I think, and now I can talk about them in spoiler zone, why this, I think, is not as good as Ex Machina, but I think you should put the case for... Okay. I'm very interested to hear why... I thought, as I was watching Annihilation, I thought, oh, great, this is the... As I began to realise what it was about, and as you said, so they go into... The Shimmer, and it is an alien force that is basically like the telepod from the fly. It's kind of breaking things down to its basic components and refracting them. So it's kind of splicing things together, and it's splicing them at at a molecular level and a DNA level so that things become like the things around them. And it's not doing it in any particular... Yeah, it doesn't... Well, that's the thing. It doesn't seem to be a virulent way for most of the film. Or like a malevolent way. And it reminded me of that interview with David Cronenberg when he said, I'm interested in stories that are told from the virus's point of view. If you tell a story from a virus's point of view, 
it's the good guy, it's doing amazing things, it's changing things, it's creating something new. This is a big adventure that this thing is on. It's just, when you see it from our point of view, that it's either a pain in the arse or a life-threatening pain in the arse. And I thought, well, that's good, because we haven't seen a lot of films that are really told from the virus's point of view outside of David Cronenberg's movies. And I thought this would be something also like The Andromeda Strain, which is, again, um, a very intelligent look at uh, an alien invasion that is on a viral level. And you could even argue that John Carpenter's The Thing, which I think is one of the great movies, seems to be viral. When yeah. you see the computer simulation, when it's taken over cells... That is, it seems to be a viral threat. And again, you could say there that it's that the thing you could argue only reacts malevolently when it's threatened. Of course, it does try to get well, people. That's one thing that makes a particular interpretation of the ending so genius. The, I, the, the idea that, oh, what is the name of... Um, Kane. Kurt, um, he, uh, Kane. Kurt Russell, is that Kurt Russell's character? Oh no, sorry, what, in, in the thing? Yeah, McCready. The thing. McCready. He gives... I'm forgetting characters' names. He gives his fellow survivor, a drink. Child's. Child's. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, brain, brain dead at the moment. Um, he gives Child's a drink, and there's a fan theory surrounding that, that what he gives Child's to drink is is petrol. He doesn't give him whiskey. He gives him petrol, like having taken this, knowing that if he is the thing, he won't react to it. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting based on what you said in terms of malevolence. And it, as long as the creature doesn't know that you're out to get it, as long as the creature thinks you're fooled, you're fine. Yeah. And that's just a way that he can know in that moment whether this thing is Child's or whether it, you know whether this is Child's or whether it is the thing. And it's I, an interesting theory. You never see anything that would back that up as being no, something. I, but but I, it's I, an interesting theory. And I, that's one thing. Uh, Annihilation. I, 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 I think it lent itself to. I don't know. Maybe it lent itself to theorizing, or maybe I'm projecting a lot on it. But for example, the creature. The, the 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 really horrific haunting it bear. Look, bear that's the thing people keep saying bear but to me it looks because of the skull face it's got because the, it looks more like an anteater to me no it, is, it does look like an anteater and that's the thing is that the so there is a bear in the film and it, yeah if you're watching um, sorry if you're listening to the spoiler section we presume you've seen the film there is obviously a bear attack and the bear comes back later and it seems to have absorbed some of not just the DNA but some of the soul of Shepard, the character uh, that it kills. And it seems as if its head is turning into, you know, developing into a into a more human skull but it does seem to have kind of locked that last moment of terror and kind of immortalised that in itself. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. But... For me, as the film went on, it just went more and more into just your standard sci-fi trappings. So it was like Predator or Alien um, in terms of there's a big bad and we're going to have to get away and they'll get picked off one by one. I was fascinated by the idea of the the creature having done this. And it's like, okay, has this thing adopted the cry of its prey, like, you know, sort of on like an instinctual level as kind of like a law... Or has it done it completely un like completely unknowingly? It's just it's just seized upon that because it's it heard it at a moment and it's absorbed that and it's become this unintentional mockery. And I, the idea to what extent this thing there is there is a design to any of this. I thought with that, I thought it was one of those things where because there's a it's told in flashback, so and Natalie Portman's character Lena um, Lena is talking to Benedict Wong, who seems to be like a supervising scientist who's interviewing about what's happened because again with spoilers is fine she gets out of the shimmer and she says some of it's beautiful some of it isn't 
And I took from that that it was an unwitting thing that the bear didn't know that it was going to be infected in this way and now is suffering because it's walking around with her terror and and her sadness, which is an interesting idea. The only thing is, I thought, the way that you're introducing this is just a plot mechanic to get them out of being killed by the Gina Rodriguez character when she's got them all tied to a chair. But I didn't think it was, because I think the film pays it off. Because think about it, the the ending of the film, when the film ends at the lighthouse where the meteors landed, is... Well, no, the film... At the well, very end, the film's climax, sorry, rather than it's done anymore. Mm. Um, ends at the, mm. And the idea of the fact that this, there is this force beyond us, whatever this thing is, that has taken on traits from us, unwittingly or otherwise, and that's what enables us to destroy it. The idea, my, my, my reading of it is okay, why would this thing take. The thing ultimately tries to assume human form or, like, you know, mimic, mimic human form. Mm. But it's got no reason to do that unless it's absorbed something from us. You know, let's say this thing is vast, and let's say this thing is God. It doesn't have anything, any recognisable human traits until it inadvertently starts picking them up. Because it, it lands here, it forms this bubble, it starts exploring, it starts experimenting, it starts incorporating this DNA. All of a sudden, person, person wanders in, and it starts picking up human characteristics. All of a sudden, it's curious. It's as curious about us as we are about it, and that's not a trait that it knows. It's not... You know, this thing is God, and all of a sudden, God or this force, whatever it is, is taking human form because it wants to know us, it wants to understand us because that's a human thing. That's why we've gone into it. Mm. And because of that, because of that curiosity, it's the gift of, you know, she, her handing it the phosphorus grenade and it taking it from her. And the idea that the idea of this mimicry and the mirroring is ultimately what destroys it. The irony that because it is not parasitic, but it does incorporate us into it. We essentially make it mortal. We sort of we give it this sort of the idea, the gift of this gift of death, and I think that's kind of paid off in the symbol of the lighthouse, which ends up burning, and it's this building that's intended to give out light and intended to serve this purpose, but it's not intended to do it in that way. That's meant to have a light, it's meant to have a revolve, it's meant to be this piece of technology, and it's on fire. It's it's doing the thing, but it's doing the thing in a completely unexpected way that it was not designed to do. But I think with, I mean that's interesting. That's actually much more interesting than the film is itself I think and I think that I don't agree entirely that that's what the film's doing because I think there are certain things that it states that maybe undercut that I think that's actually much a much better idea than what the film says I think because there's the moment when when Jennifer Jason Lee goes into the, the yeah, subterranean area beneath Geigerland yeah yes it, it is Geigerland but that's the thing is that there's some really interesting stuff here because she goes into what is basically quite a vaginal opening. So you, you think, okay, right, so we're in alien, we yeah, Geiger territory here. Of course, the lighthouse is like a phallic symbol. That is the, it is the place where this new life starts from. So there's some good, quite subtle sexual imagery, I think. Uh, you know, or maybe not so subtle. But Jennifer Jason Lee, when she's in that yeah, subterranean womb-like area, says they want to destroy us. They want to break us down to our basic components. And then she regenerates. <laughs> Just, does the whole Doctor Who thing and breaks down to the basic components. And it's like, are we now just stumbling into body snatchers territory? Because then when you see that Kane, the Oscar Isaac character that has come back, isn't actually that person, it is a mimic of him. It's like, well, what happened to that stuff about refracting? Why is he exactly the same? 
that, 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 that's my reading in terms of what it's taken from us. And when she says, oh, they want to destroy us, they want to replace us, that's her not understanding. That's her mm. trying to project psychology onto this thing, like basic human... Because she's a psychologist. That's the lens that she's brought to this. She's going to try and say, uh, try and understand this as though it were a human consciousness, as though it were something sentient that you could say, this thing has an agenda. But it doesn't. It's mimicking. It's absorbing. It's taking on traits. And the reason it's just spat this back out is it's just taken her DNA. But I still think I'm, I'm not entirely sure that the film itself provides that as a counterpoint or like a counter argument. I think that there is an element of body snatchers to this in terms of of it going against the whole thing about it's just refracting this. And because why would it be so fascinated with us rather than with the alligator? The alligator is like a much a much better predator. Um, it's much more interesting. It has you know, it lives longer. There's an alligator in this film. But that's based on the oh, that's based on survival. That's pragmatic, as opposed to because that's the thing. This thing is kind of like I don't. Uh, I don't think there's... I think it's interested in us because it, because we are interested. But that's the thing that I thought was ultimately not as as interesting is that there's there's a thing here that this thing is is without compassion and also kind of without curiosity. I think is is a good idea. It, it just changes things. I thought, well, this is this is a really great idea because we have to get used to reality now shifting. And you were talking about the, the Tarkovsky element to it in Stalker. Of course, Stalker is, of course, based on a famous Russian novel where you go into the zone of unreality and reality and the laws of reality can change from moment to moment and people just have to accept it. Of course, that was written in the late in the 70s. 70s as a commentary on, on the Soviet Union when you would just have to change the way that you thought to toe the party line. And also, we've always been at war with Oceana. But also, take in, to the logic, in take a more banal the... way, like kind of we are you know, having record produce numbers, but there's no food in the supermarket. So therefore, you have to believe that. But even though your eyes are telling you something else, you have to believe this. And that is a great commentary on the Soviet Union. This, I thought, was like, well... We're at a time right now where everything's in flux. Gender, we used to think that it was quite binary, but it's actually more of a spectrum. So is this commenting on that? And I like the fact that it was like, this is just a change that is happening, and we are going to have to get used to this change, and we're going to have to learn to live with it, and maybe we won't survive this change, but this is going to happen. When it got into, now he's going to mimic him as an exact double after having things like the person who gets freaked out and ties everyone else to a chair and is going to kill them, or maybe you're not going to kill them, but you're thinking, we're just getting into quite standard sci-fi horror elements here. And also, the thing 20-odd years ago, um, 25 years ago, did this whole thing, but there was a real point to it, and it, I don't think there's much of a point in it. This actually reminds me of Sunshine. Ah. When, it, yeah, the end of Sunshine, which was also in Alex Garland, wasn't it? Yeah, he wrote it, yeah. Well, the end of Sunshine just turns into a kind of slasher film. And it's like, oh, mm, not as interesting as the first two acts of this movie. And I thought this, to a much lesser degree, I thought had the same issues around it. It also has the end of every single 70s horror film when her eyes change. And it's like, oh, don't do the eyes changing, because that's the end to every horror film, isn't it? Um, that's the, I, I, I wasn't a big fan of the eyes change, but I thought it was a neat way of conveying... I was still that you can still catch this. It's, yeah, it's still viral. And the fact that, or the fact that these are these these are still Lena and Kane, because they've been replicated in every meaningful way, and they're trying to figure out who they are and whether or not they're human, and they don't think they are. But what does that mean if they're not? 
and how that plays into the idea of the force and the idea of what are we beyond our circumstances the idea that you enter into this place and you know your your memory of your time in there is is going you know, is going to be very unreliable and your understanding of who you are as an individual and as a member of the human species is going to be broken down and at the end these are these are two you know two people who have been constituted or reconstituted or recreated by this force mm. who then have to go out into the world and try and figure out who they are am i lena am i kane what does it mean if i am what does it mean if i what do mean, what if i am just a projection of this force and as like an existential exploration of what it means to be a person I found that really interesting. See, I actually took that a little bit differently. I thought that it was Lena because the film seemed to pretty much say this that she survives and she actually ends what you think of as a threat. But then when she gets hugged by by the mimic of Kane, that there is still that he can pass that on almost like a contagion and pass the change onto her so that it's found another way to propagate itself. But, or has it been, or has she just been changed so fundamentally by her time in the shimmer? Yeah, maybe, yeah, because you and, see that all blood has changed. And ultimately, yeah. is there any difference between those two things? Yeah, indeed. Is there any difference between a person that's been created, recreated by the Shimmer or a person that has been changed by the Shimmer? But then I think the thing there is that, is that in and of itself interesting? And I'm not entirely sure oh, it is. I, I found it really fascinating. See, I didn't find it fascinating. I thought, the, I thought there was a really interesting thing with the Tessa Thompson character when she basically just says, actually... well. You could say that she goes mad, but like another way to look at it would be from that David Cronenberg point of view, thinking this is a new experience. This is a new way of being, and seems to give herself over to it to the point where, you know, actually, it's left really ambiguous what what happens to her, isn't it? She you don't really see what happens to her, but it's implied. That it's implied that she becomes a tree. Yes, indeed. And that's the thing is that this film has those great moments in it where because there is just something freaky about trees that look like people to get really odd <laughs> I went to see a fil- um, I went to see a friend in Retford last year and we went on this walk around this big reservoir and they had a tree person like in Annihilation just outside of one of their cafes it was someone who'd been made out of branches and I said there's just something so weird about seeing the human form but made of something else living mm-hmm. and I was really happy when it pops up in this film because it's like yeah that's a gr- that's a great image of just we are just taking everything here because we just can't really differentiate or, or, or we choose not to differentiate so therefore we will create these things that seem to be really quite prevalent i.e. people we will take them and uh, we will yeah, create them out of other, other things and, and, and you've also got like the deconstructed skeletons on the beach that I think is a really nice touch and, uh, and, and the crystal trees that are very um, J.G. Ballard they are, but the, but the thing there that um, our friend Ben actually said he wasn't entirely sure about was like, well, is this? It seemed to be this was something that was only biological, but then suddenly it's is it elemental in terms of so now it's it can affect water and it can and it can affect the earth. It's like well, there's no these are not biological, but it seems to be able to manipulate these as well. Is that something it can do? Well, it's, it's affecting the laws of biology as an extension of physics. Mm. In terms of, you know, I think it might just be like good image. This was good image. <laughs> I think I, I haven't read the book, and this is, and, and, and by all accounts, Alex Garland didn't reread the book before writing the script for this and directing the film. He I, kind of, he kind of just did it as like a cheese dream. I get the, yeah, I got the impression when I saw this was based on a book. I thought it would be interesting to see how much of this skews to the book. I also think one of the things there where there are lots of really good ideas in it, and lots of things I think were executed very well, but lots of it seems to be. Really, that's the choice you're going to make for this? And her guilt over having an, an affair when she thought that her husband, Cain, was dead, 
Yeah, it's kind of like really that's your motivation for going into the shimmer. Yeah, I think I think Natalie Portman playing guilt in a film where her husband's been killed, apparently been killed. I just, I just can't imagine that ever being a rewarding traumatic choice. <laughs> what what Natalie Portman film am I not thinking of? Jackie. Oh yeah, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Which was one of my films of last year. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah, and I did think about Jackie when I was watching it, but I thought she's a great actress, and she's. This is going to sound creepy. It's not intended to. She's an all-time great crier. There are certain actors who you think that they you do something incredibly naturally or something in such a believable human way. And N- Natalie Portman in crying is because she gets all snotty. She yeah, but not too snotty. And I think we have to have a moratorium. the right level of snottiness. We need a moratorium on snot in films because Jesus Christ, it's literally like they just blown their nose after a fences. The bottom half of her face looks like she's been kissed by Slimer from Ghostbusters. And there was a film I was watching recently. Oh, yeah. Reborn, which is a pretty good Japanese action film. But there's a bit where this guy starts crying and there's just snot all over the place. It's like, can we stop snotting everywhere, please? Because I think that crying with your eyes is, is enough. Can we stop snotting everywhere? Yes, indeed. We have to, because, it, come on, it's a bit disgusting, isn't it? But yeah, she is... She's a great crier in Jackie, and that breakdown that she has when she talks about the assassination and then just pulls herself together and says, but of course I would never let you print any of that, is brilliant. What I liked about her in this was that she did cry in this, but she was also someone who was ex-army, and so therefore you're thinking, well, actually, she's made of tough stuff and also will be able to hold her emotions in check. So there was just the sense that she was trying to control her grief. So her performance, I think, was one of the real strengths of the film. And I think if if she hadn't been in it, I think I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Although I do think that Alex Garland can direct a really good... Yeah, he's a good director. I thought the cast were uniformly pretty great. I mean, I think Tessa Thompson, mm. who's playing this specky kind of unass- unassuming physicist yes. after her role as you know Valkyrie in uh, Thor Ragnarok. Absolutely. I thought Jennifer Jason Lee. She always has this sense of kind of, of ferocity about her. She has this, uh, like, like, yeah. like hateful A. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Well, she does, but even in this, when she's, like, you know, very buttoned down, very, very closed off, playing a cerebral professional, there's a real sense of kind of menace to her. Even though she's not a particularly menacing character, there is a sense that she could do some damage. But also, yeah, it's one of those things where she, because she's 56 years old now, and so to get really grim, she's seven years away, I think, from the age her dad was, Vic Morrow, when he died on the set of the Twilight Zone movie, which must be given her pause of thought. Circle back around to Spielberg again. So sorry, Spielberg again. One little thing I liked, uh, I, I don't know if I read too much, I, I definitely read too much of this, but when they're all venturing into the shimmer and they've all got those uh, yellow sleeping bags slung underneath their rucksacks, mm. for some reason it really brought, made me think of proton packs. Oh, right, yes, yes. That's the kind of subtlety of reference I can get behind. I don't need <laughs> the any... intentional references. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't need no. I enjoyed it! <laughs> Godzilla! Yay! I, on the other hand, like my foie gras from references and my Burger King. Both of both worlds. I do now at the same lots, time. <laughs> we'll get lots and lots of complaints. I say, You like foie gras? I do. I'm sorry, I do. The cruelty that makes it taste so sweet. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm not sure that I've got from you what you think makes this a masterpiece. I think partly... Although you have explained it very well in terms of why you like the film. That it's provoked that level, that thought in me. And maybe I'm, pro- hugely, maybe I'm projecting all those themes onto it. 
but the fact that I felt that it gave me as well as being an incredibly beautiful well acted piece of cinema that it gave me a space in which those themes and ideas flowed mm. and that I, I really I, turned, I didn't walk out the cinema but I turned it off thinking wow I, I, th- I thought it was really rewarding I really engaged with that that was really and again thought provoking and in such on 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 a, on a level or prov- provocation in a way that I I'm very leery about giving almost anything five star. I'm I'm notoriously leery. I was four point five. It's not quite there. Yeah, because you allow yourself the compromise yeah, of a half star. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, the fact that I was I was writing this up and I thought you know what I'm going to give this five star because mm, I but... just think as an example of the genre, it's the best I've seen in years. I will quickly get on to what you just said, but I'm not entirely sure that when it ended, you thought, oh, that's really satisfying. Oh, that was really good. I think you thought, oh, it's on fucking hell, Netflix. Will you stop putting the credits into a tiny screen and then telling me what to watch next? I want the film to fucking breathe. Because <laughs> that's what I thought. It was like, okay, that wasn't ultimately as great as I was hoping it was going to be. But there was a, yeah, a lot of, oh, fucking hell, could I just watch the credits? Could I not just have something else rammed down my throat? Give the film some space to breathe, fucking hell. That's what I thought. <laughs> but then after that, when I called the credits back up again, so I could then have a think about it, I thought, yeah, it was a film that I thoroughly enjoyed, but I did have some issues with. But that's one of the great things about really good movies and really interesting movies, and this is one of those, is that... Certain people can be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say. Yeah, certain people just won't understand it. Yeah. Some people would have shown themselves as being a bit thick. <laughs> Is that you could have very different reactions from the exact same thing that's happening in front of you. I always say when I went to see the piano teacher at the LFF many years ago with my friend Adrian, and the film ended... And the exact same thing had happened, and we'd watched the exact same thing, and I said, my God, that's just one of the films of the year, yeah? And he said, that was one of the worst fucking films I've ever seen. It's like, wow. And I said, do you not think that that's one of the amazing things about cinema, is that that was the same thing, and these two polar opposites went, no, that was shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> us and, uh, when we were on the same page in Manchester by the sea, but our friend Jason very much... Oh, lots of people, yeah. So, just, just found it boring. Yeah. Or just thought it just went nowhere, and... And there was something else, actually. There was another film I was thinking of, that Last Flag Flying, which is a film that you it left you a bit cold. But it, you know, when I was writing it up, I thought, I'm sorry, but the I think that the emotional heft of that film and also the character's journeys, not just like a psychological journey, but the emotional journey of like what it means to stand up for your principles, but also what your principles actually mean in the grander scheme of, of other people and how they can... Yeah, manifest themselves in different ways and how you might have to recalibrate your principles for like a greater good and not just for your own um, you know, self-righteousness I thought that I just thought that was done so well that I had to give it five stars so yeah okay uh, you know so my your, your last flag flying is my annihilation and vice versa my one though didn't at times remind me of Blair Witch <laughs> which annihilation did I thought we're not going to get into Blair Witch are we that bit when they wake up and they've been camping for three days and they have no memory of it which I thought well that's good because when I go camping I try to yeah, block out everything that's happening with but uh it didn't yeah it wasn't Blair Witch there was but just that one thing about time you're yeah, being in a tent and time being lost you always don't think about Blair Witch um, but not the Blair Witch Project, the really good one, but the rather um, disappointing sequel that came out a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago. Though that film would just come and go on and like, 
I quite enjoyed it first time I saw it. It was all right. Adam Wingard, a couple of good match cuts. Yeah, it did, but it was one of those where it's like, I'm sorry, but there's nothing. You are telling nothing. If you, if you walk out of a film going, a couple of good match cuts. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, that's right. Yes, it's like to one of the films that really did kind of redefine how how horror cinema was going to be told. I mean, like, yeah, it kind of, I mean, yeah, it didn't invent the found footage thing, but it it set the found footage subgenre as as the dominant subgenre for horror for many many years that arguably reached its epoch with if it, in, in scale if not in quality with I don't know what was it Cloverfield oh I was say Cloverfield but, but the much one since that was about 10, but 10 in, years in ago. terms of I don't think there's been like a proper massive found footage blockbuster since Cloverfield has there no but in terms of films that are good because Cloverfield wasn't really a blockbuster Cloverfield actually was more like Annihilation wasn't it it was one of those films it was like a film that was released early in the year and was like a bit of a sleeper. It just happened to be a five-star movie. Because Cloverfield was great in terms of we can do really, really big effects relatively cheaply now, but we can also do effects that look like they've been caught on camera. Like the most amazing and catastrophic things like the Empire State Building coming down and you get like a bit of a glimpse of it because it's, it's yeah, being filmed. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. I would say, actually, that one of the best found footage films of recent years is a film called The Borderlands, which is set in Scotland and is a really clever film about some Catholic... I'm in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> about Catholic possession debunkers who go and film people who say they're possessed. And oh, then I, say I thought you were going to say Catholics who own property. Catholics who own things. Catholics, <laughs> right? Yeah. Catholic, Catholic possession debunkers. <laughs> That's right. No. Hello, um, this is my chaise lounge. It's right. my chaise lounge. It's like a, no, no, it's my, not. <laughs> this is my ceiling. It's quite nice, but anyway, oh, that's I, very good. I, I thought you were going to talk about um, found footage, found footage three D. Oh yes, indeed, and there was that as well, wasn't there? Found footage 3D, which is actually a better film than Blair Witch, and the director, bless his heart, retweeted my review of Blair Witch, because in my review of Blair Witch, I said, this is not as good as films you've heard of, like The Blair Witch, and films you haven't heard of, like found footage 3D, which starts off as one of those films, it's about the filming of a horror film, but as they get more into it, it actually becomes a horror film, and it's really, really clever and really funny, and I think it might be on Shudder now, so if... Yeah, it's worth a look. Found footage 3D, although of course you won't see it in 3D. But one of the jokes at the beginning of the film is like, people hate found footage films and they hate 3D. Why are we putting them together? Because it's never been done before. So yes, it's very good. So, (laughs) is there anything else to say about Annihilation? I think I'm tapped out. I think I've... I think you gave it a good go in terms of Case for the Defence. It's the best Netflix film since Ogja, I think. I can't think of one since then that... No, it's... Is as in it's a proper film that you want to watch more than once, and because the babysitter is really good fun, <laughs> but you're not going to rush back to the babysitter. But Annihilation, I can see myself putting on again. So yeah, because I think there will be more to get from it on subsequent viewings. Not sure it's going to tip over to five stars for me, but it's yeah, I think it's a very good film, and I'm happy that you liked it. <laughs> and I'm happy that you liked fuck. Ready Player One. <laughs> and yes, I will. Get the audio book with Will Wheaton reading it to me for 15 hours. And if you see that Armada, which is Ernest Klein's other yeah, book. Yeah, it's apparently not. It's apparently it's not, especially not good. Oh, really? Because that's been optioned and it's apparently in some kind of pre production now. That's just Last Starfighter, basically. Well, that's because the Kodan Armada 
is from Last Starfighter. Oh, dear, and it's like, it did look a bit Last Starfighter. And it's like, hmm. Well, I love Last Starfighter. It's a really good idea. I'm surprised that more people haven't just ripped it off. So, anyway, we will see what Armada is like. So, okay, well, thank you for listening. We will see you on the next one for whatever it is we're talking about. And whenever that may be, it might be about a month from now, at which point it will be um, Infinity Wars. Which, to be honest, on that new trailer, I'm kind of looking forward to. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly excited. Which I haven't felt for a while. Um, Just generally. Yeah, indeed. I still need to see Black Panther. So, yeah, I might roll my thoughts of that into the Infinity Wars pod. And then, yeah, Last Jedi will be out by that point as well, so we can talk about that. And uh, then we'll get hammered and watch Sound of Music. Let's do it. Cool. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening. We have the Holy Hand Grenade. Yes, of course. The Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch. It is one of the sacred relics Brother Maynard carries with him. Brother Maynard. Bring up the holy hand grenade. Pie Jesu Domine, Dona Eis Requiem. Pie Jesu Domine, Dona Eis Requiem. How does it, um, how does it work? I know not, my liege. Consult the Book of Armaments. Armaments, chapter 2, verses 9 to 21. And St. Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs, and sloths, and carp, and anchovies, and orangutans, and breakfast cereals, and fruit bats, and large... Give a bit, brother. And the Lord spake, saying, First shalt thou take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. Five is right out. Once the number three, being the third number, be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who, being not in my sight, shall snuff it. Amen. 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 Right. One, two, five. Three, sir. Three. Oh.